You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Ross D. Inman, the author of the new book, Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life. In the conversation, Ross discusses the connection between Christianity and philosophy, the importance of asking big questions, and the role of wonder in daily life. We discuss how philosophy can be a way of life, why contemplation leads to a deeper understanding of truth, and so much more. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you do as well. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Ross D. Inman. All right. Well, Ross, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you, Joshua, for having me. It's a pleasure. It is a pleasure on this end. As I was just stating before we hit record, uh, really, really enjoyed the book and uh, so happy that I I found it. And that book for the listeners that we're going to be talking about today is Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life. Um, But like most episodes, before we get into it, I want to spend a few minutes and get to know a little bit about you and your own search. So would you mind sharing maybe how you initially found your way to have an interest in philosophy? Absolutely. Yeah, I I think for me, um, I mean, I had I didn't have an intellectual bone in my body uh, in high up to high school. I'd say up to my junior year in high school. All the assigned uh, books we were supposed to read, all the classics for high school, I would I would get the cliff notes and skim them, right? I had zero intellectual appetite for truth or for wisdom or understanding, you know, uh, who we are and our place in the universe. Uh, and it wasn't until actually uh, coming to Christ, uh, becoming a Christian uh, when I was 16 years old, that it was almost as if kind of... Uh, there was this soul renovation that happened in me and it was like there were some additional add-ons to my soul that I didn't really even know uh, what these were. And one of those was just an uh, an intellectual curiosity uh, to uh, for knowledge and wisdom and truth and I just wasn't truth interested up to that point. And something shifted within me uh, when I was 16 years old uh, and I think it became – that was the start of a kind of a journey or a quest for me uh, to just greater deepening my understanding of uh, reality and the good life. And uh, it's really been a journey uh, ever since, uh, honestly. But um, that's at least what jump-started the initial um, interest in philosophical study. Actually, I should say um, how it got narrowed to philosophy in particular um, I remember studying all sorts of things in college. I was a, a biblical studies uh, major, and I remember just the questions that I was gravitating towards, Joshua, the ones that were keeping me up at night. They were those deeper fundamental questions, the bigger questions, the weightier questions. Then I realized my peers and my professors were were really asking uh, at that point in my life. And so uh, I walked into my first uh, philosophy class uh, at this college that I transferred into, and I walked into this class. I looked at the syllabus, and it was almost like there was this existential homecoming, in a sense, where I realized these are the questions. Like, there's a discipline that I can devote myself to, and 
there's been a conversation that's been going on uh, for thousands of years about these big questions. And that really kind of got me leaning in initially to start listening to the historical conversation. So that was kind of how it started for me to get interested in uh, the history of philosophy, uh, trying to bring myself up to speed as to what's what's the conversation been uh, about reality and the good life and uh, knowledge and and so forth. So I'd say that's really how things got jump started for me was was my kind of uh, entering into a religious community uh, at that point that really began to um, you know instill and cultivate in me desire for truth and wisdom and understanding the world. Yeah, I appreciate that, Ross. It's so interesting that you know the kind of general time frame of of oh. when it initially um started which is um fairly common you know across the the guests that that we've had there's some oh. sort of um moment that kicks off i call it a search but you know you could call it many many other many other things i'm curious in the way of you know the, the title of the book christian philosophy yeah we don't, especially like as lay people, myself, don't always think of those two things mm-hmm. put together. Like, why Why is that, you think? Why is it that we don't often sort of wed together Christianity and philosophy? Yes. Yeah, that's a really, I think, a really important question, mm-hmm. a really multifaceted question. Um, maybe one one pass at it would be something like uh, many people think about Christianity um, not as a kind of systematic uh, philosophy of life or systematic um, set of truths about reality and the good life. They they think of it more in um, maybe subjective terms as maybe something that can help my life go well. And, and that's really all, um, they don't think of it necessarily in terms of, uh, a a system that has certain entailments regarding, uh, reality and how reality is structured and what's fundamental and what sorts of goods are ultimately worth pursuing. And, say like a philosophy of life that would that would stand you know toe to toe to other uh ancient philosophies say like epicureanism or stoicism or things like that or platonism or neoplatonism um i just we don't tend to think about christianity in 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 those kind of fully orbed terms we think of it more maybe in the psychological sense as maybe therapeutic in the thin sense of the word that is it just sort of helps it's something that I can sort of draw on that will help my life go better subjectively. Um, maybe that's one reason why we don't tend to think about Christianity as like offering knowledge of reality in the good life. Uh, we, we, we tend to rely upon it as uh, a guide for living only, right, rather than a guide for living that's based in knowledge of reality and the good life. So that, that may be one reason. Um, that you know, uh, a lot of Christians are very praxis oriented. They're very uh, action oriented, and uh, I, you know, and it, the the sort of the intellectual substance of Christianity can often get get eclipsed in that kind of value structure. 
um, where we're focusing solely on uh, just tell me what I need to do, right? Tell me what I, how I need to live. Um, that's important question, but that's a, that's not the, that's a, that's a downstream question, I think, to these more fundamental questions. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, as you mentioned early, like the asking big questions, um, this could be my own, you know, bias or insecurities or, or whatever it may be. But I think initially, sometimes I have thought that asking some of these big questions, especially in certain, you know, places, wherever it may be, like around Christianity, religion, you know, just big questions in general can feel um, uncomfortable yep. for some. I, I didn't necessarily think like early on of uh, people like Augustine and Aquinas that come up in your book of, you know, people that really wrestled yep. with the big questions. Sometimes it can feel like... Uh, I should just have faith maybe, or, you know, it's like, I, I don't necessarily, why do I need to know, or why do I need to wrestle with this particular question? I'm glad you pointed that out. Cause part of my own story, <clears throat> Joshua, when I was 16, back in that sort of identifiable moment for me, when this quest started is I, I had already become a Christian. I'd already be, said I was going to be an apprentice or follower of Jesus Christ. But then I realized um, I'd like to understand at a more deep level um, the commitments of Christianity, right? I'd like to understand the the philosophical and theological commitments. And I remember turning to those in my immediate religious community, my church community, and just uh, asking for insight and guidance about how to navigate some of these tough philosophical objections even to Christianity, like the problem of evil, pervasive and horrendous evil. Is this the, is this the kind of world we would expect to see if Christianity were true? No, it's, no, it's not. And so how do I think through these questions with substance and, and honesty, right? How do I wrestle? And I remember, Joshua, the, the response that I got was well-meaning, but it was something along the lines you just gave that, hey, you sh- really shouldn't be pressing into these kinds of questions, um, you really need to just have more faith, whatever whatever that was and how they were understanding that. Something along the lines of you just need to dial up your psychological certainty in these things <laughs> rather than actually explore with intellectual substance. Um, this is not a new question. Let's let's actually dive into how these questions were were answered historically. Uh, there's a rich uh, well of wisdom in the Christian tradition that I just was blind to and oblivious to. And so I think for me, it was realizing philosophy was that way of leaning in intellectually. It was a way of sort of moving from intellectual neutral, sort of idling in intellectual neutral in my faith, to actually seeking to understand what it is that I believe and testing its coherence, seeing if it's on reliable foundation. Is does this view of the world make sense? Um, you know that sort of thing. So I completely understand, and I think that might just be a function of uh, many modern Christian communities than actually historic Christian teaching about the relationship between Christianity and philosophy. As I point out in the book, um, Christianity was a way of life for many of these ancient thinkers. It provided a a uh, a truth aimed action guiding view of the world for the sake of living well, and it had intellectual substance to it that guided our guided one's life. And uh, 
it was very much a a rival way of viewing the world and in living one's life. And so I I guess for me, the more I dug into that rich well of wisdom in the Christian tradition, the more I became uh, confident that I didn't have to shy away from uh, intellectually exploring my faith. Mm, beautiful. Uh, let me ask you, as someone who doesn't have any sort of formal like theology training and things like that, I have always heard that, um, you know, monks and things like that generally start with philosophy before getting to some of the the theology work. Is that true? Is that like a traditional thing of of starting with philosophy before getting into theological training? Uh, in terms of like formal training? Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, well, theology was considered at least um, in, the, in the medieval schools uh, as the queen of the sciences. So there were certain prerequisites that you had to engage in by way of study uh, before you before you were allowed to sort of engage in theological reflection, um, mm. so uh, logic, dialectic, philosophy, um, these were these were very much part and parcel of of curriculum, university curriculum, um, before theology was was uh, was on the on the docket, so to speak. And there are very interesting reasons, various interesting reasons for that. But um, but yeah, depending on. Uh, who you focus on that's 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 right in some cases yeah yeah interesting um we generally start these conversations with um maybe defining terms and and things like that and uh one that comes up early in the book is wonder yeah so could you talk about you know just the the general you know how are you thinking about wonder in daily life yeah great question thank you uh, i i think what initially got me wondering about this question about the nature of wonder was, you know, the more the more you read around is as as I'm familiar with your with your podcast now and, and some of the people you've had on, you know, philosophy is a way of life. This sort of idea that philosophy begins in wonder, uh, sort of an ancient philosophical way of life was suffused with this posture of wonder. You find it in, in Plato's Theotetus, you find it in Aristotle, you find it later in the Christian tradition. Wonder is kind of an essential ingredient to the philosophical life for many of these ancient thinkers and it just got me it got me thinking well what what is it to wonder i mean we just i know it when i see it but how do i get a grasp on what is it what sets the experience of wonder apart from other human experiences right and you know i I began to read around and I realized, you know, in the last 15 years or so, Joshua, the, 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 the literature and the psychological sciences about awe and wonder has just exploded. It's been really neat. And I would just encourage yeah. listeners, if you'd like to dive in further on this, it is incredibly enriching, um, especially if you're interested philosophically and you think wonder is a big part of the beginning, the middle and the end of the philosophical life. It's it's fascinating. So what I do is I borrow an account. It's a fairly well-known account in the psychological literature from Dr. Keltner and Jonathan Haidt. Uh, they say there are two basic ingredients to an experience of wonder. And the first is uh, perceived vastness. And the second is a need for accommodation. So the first perceived vastness is uh, one encounters something that's much larger than oneself, 
right? Something that's beyond one's ordinary range of experience or frame of reference, right? So um, we often express this as it was mind-blowing, right? This could either be a physical like object like the Grand Canyon. Uh, it could be another human being in terms of their like moral weight or gravitas, right? Um, that just has an incredible impact on you. Uh, it could be an idea or a theoretical concept like the special theory of relativity or Gödel's theorem, those ex examples I give in the book, right? Something that's just theoretically complex, that's just mind-blowing. It, it sort of shakes you out of the humdrum of ordinary experience. Um, so perceived vastness, remember that doesn't just mean physical vastness, but just it could be theoretical vastness, ideological vastness, or physical vastness. But the second is a need for accommodation. So once you once you you perceive the vastness of the object, you realize you've got you've got to make some adjustments or accommodations in the way that you think about or conceive of the world, right? Maybe your your view of the world was too small or too narrow or too one-sided. Um so it's the realization that your grasp on the world is too small. It's just it's just not adequate to the way things truly are, right? Whether about the natural world, whether about mathematics or the structure of the physical universe or even God. Um, it could be theological as well. So it's these two conditions that, that Keltner and Haidt say define an experience of uh, wonder in particular, psychologically. I'm curious to ask, Ross, in, in the way of wonder, and we, we're talking about this like way of life, is this something we should intentionally seek out, like intentionally um, attempt to experience, or does that um, take some of the awe and wonder, wonder out of it? Yeah, um, well, I think, I think for many of us, we don't have to be taught to to seek experiences of wonder. Um, and I, I, you know, I just think, and the example I give in the book is this would be an extreme kind of limit example, but the idea of space tourism, right? Um, when people, when people tell us when they come back from the edge of space, just the, the seeing earth from the vantage point of space, just, it, it 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 hits them so hard and has such an impact on them that it actually puts their whole life into perspective. It mm. it makes them feel very small and insignificant, but in a good way, right? It sort of reorders yeah. their priorities. It it makes them more connected to uh, the earth and other human beings on it. So I think you know we we all can't seek wonder in that sense, but I think even in a more mundane level. I think we crave experiences like this, these jaw-dropping, mind-blowing experiences, um, somewhere on the spectrum of wonder, whether that's uh, in nature, right, encountering the vast magnitude of the Pacific Ocean or the Grand Canyon, or uh, learning something new that just, you know, boggles the mind, or I didn't know that, right? That's There's this kind of aha experience that... I think at a deep level, many of us crave, uh, and I, I actually don't think these kinds of, if we were made, as I argue in the book, we were made for these kinds of experiences, um, I don't think they can actually be diminished by repetition. So in the sense of like, if they're truly awe-inspiring and, and wonderful, 
right? That actually is like a deeply soul satisfying experience uh, because we were made just as like eating. It can be a deeply satisfied experience, experience. Um, you know, my repeated eating, it doesn't just, I mean, it's, I'm satisfied whenever I eat, right? <laughs> Physically, yeah. I love eating. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't diminish the pleasure of eating for me because I do it three times a day. I tend to think, I and mean, this is just, you know, my, my, my own reporting, my own experience here too, is these experiences of wonder tend not to be diminished by repetition in the same way that, you know, my, the pleasure I get from satisfying a physical hunger doesn't diminish by eating three times a day. Um, it's a deeply pleasurable experience because I was made to, to take in food. Um, and I and I argue that if you connect up our deep wonder hunger to a larger philosophical theological story like Christianity that we were actually made for God and that he is the 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 object that is truly vast and immense and if we were made for him on the Christian story well then it's uh it's no surprise that we exhibit this kind of wonder hunger at, at a basic ordinary mundane level um yeah, so that's a that's a good question. I tend to think that um, it doesn't diminish kind of the force of these of these experiences by their uh, being um, had more frequently, just because of the way that we were the way that we're made. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's a it's a fascinating thing. Um, you you mentioned the the space travel piece, which is. Um, you know, may not be something readily available, but something I did uh, five years ago or so now, um, went to the planetarium in Baltimore, which yeah. is just awesome. And it, it it might be up there as like one of the most profound things I've, I've done. I mean, just an absolute amazing thing to be able to like get some insights in that mm like forum you know these planetariums are you know really well done especially that one of just the vastness yep. it uh, it's unbelievable yep. um and th and that's something that they they have quite a few of those even in you know small small town type of places like i where i am um you know those things exist um but even if not that like looking up at the night sky if we can remember to do it um, and take it in, it it's it's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know the, the the mystery and the the vastness is um, all around us, but it's it's so easy to to yep. miss. Yep, you, you're putting your finger on <clears throat> what Docker and Keltner call the small self effect. Right? They say experiences mm. of wonder actually do something to those who regularly wonder or who are regularly in awe, they experience this small self-effect. So we tend to, they call it a self-transcendent emotion as well. So it like pulls us out of ourselves and actually makes us see our proper place in the world, right? It's easy to see our own lives and our own needs as kind of the center of gravity of the world. And when you're, when you encounter something like that, you're describing uh, it has this small self effect where you actually see yourself um, and your life in its proper perspective. And that can be an incredibly healthy thing 
Um, it can also make you more connected to others. And I talk a little bit about that in the book as well. It can have a social, there's social benefits in addition to individual psychological benefits about regularly experiencing uh, wonder. And, you know, it's funny, if wonder is connected to the philosophical life as it was classically, you might even say a lot of these individual and social psychological benefits can actually follow on the heels of philosophy. So like what, yeah. what is valuable? Why is philosophy and philosophical, philosophical activity, why is it individually and socially valuable? Um, I, think, I think it can actually draw upon the value of these regular experiences of wonder uh, and sort of appeal to the individual and social benefits of being in, being in states of wonder and awe, but also just living philosophically as well. Yeah. I love how you said, uh, wonder hunger, you know, it's like it's, it's within us We're we're born, born for it. It reminds me of, um, a previous episode a, a while back that some yeah. of the listeners might remember, um, author of nasty Brutus and short Scott Harowitz, uh, wrote a book, also a philosopher wrote a book with his kids and he's making the case as kids, natural philosophers and i i have a a five-year-old and when you think of wonder i mean sometimes he'll you know and i mean just (laughs) look around at any toddlers a lot of times that you know kind of get down and will really take in and like really be excited about a bird an insect you know all all sorts of things and um like we have that within us it seems like we can maybe we get a little numb to it as we you know navigate life and get other responsibilities and things like that but uh but it is an interesting idea that it's you know born within us it's like our natural kind of state to uh to be curious and you know and and wonder yeah it's interesting yep yep i think there's Uh, um good um a really cool sort of uh, harmony, as I say in the book, that in terms of th- though this you know wonder philosophy connection doesn't doesn't originate with Judeo Christianity, but it does find a natural home in Judeo Christianity, and in other those three conditions I mentioned is one uh, we actually uh, we have a hunger for these type of experiences, right? We don't need to be taught to try to, to, we are meaning seeking animals, right? Um, that's an interesting tenet, right? We, we, we could have not been meaning seeking animals. Not every creature or even animal is a meaning seeking animal. Two, that nature in, in the world is actually truly wonderful. Like there are wonders out there that are waiting to be, uh, to be beheld and to be seen and to be enjoyed and to be taken in, right? Uh, nature could have been just very drab and it doesn't have to be yeah. elegant and beautiful, even at the mathematical level. Um, it doesn't have to at all. Uh, and then secondly, like we, we, were, we were built with this unique capacity to actually track that wonderful creation, right? So one, we've got this hunger. Two, 
Nature is truly wonderful, and we're endowed with the kind of cognitive equipment to be able to actually track it and to enjoy it and to behold it. Um, That's very hard to make sense of on certain philosophical ways of life, or at least visions of reality, where, you know, everything is just atoms banging around in a void um, with no sort of purpose or or goal-directedness. It does seem like a cosmic accident that we uh, can discern the the wonder that's there to discern and be reliably good at it and actually develop complex theoretical physical theories about the world. It's very surprising. But uh, I guess uh, that's why I say in the book, uh, the Christian story provides a really neat unifying uh, backdrop to the wonder-filled philosophical life that perhaps other stories can't. Mm, yeah. Um, another term or, or phrase is is obviously in the title of the book, philosophy as a way of life. Yep. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, the history of this idea? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I, it's, it's been a little while. You, you remind me if I'm missing this, but I think I mentioned that uh, at the beginning of the chapter on philosophy as a way of life, that philosophy has a bit of a public relations problem. Um, yeah. You know, I think when a lot of people think of, although not your listeners, um, for sure, I think they're they're fairly attuned to this concept. But many people uh, just have a very strange view of what philosophy is, uh, that it seems so out of touch with, you know, my nine to five, um, how I parent, how I navigate the workplace, what I eat, right? Um how I how I take care of my body or whether I take care of my body, these sorts of things. I mean, what does philosophy have to do with with my life? And, you know, uh, as you're well aware of, you know, ancient philosophy was not really wrestling with this type of public relations problem in the way that we are in the way that we wrestle today. Um, philosophy was viewed as an entire life uh, orientation, entire an, an entire way of being in the world. All right. It wasn't just as some people think of it today, is a sort of a class you take and you sort of check it off the curriculum list and you you say goodbye to philosophy forever, right? Um, I think that's how a lot of people view philosophy. It's kind of like a one-time thing you do to get a grade so you can get a degree and then you sort of never do philosophy or live philosophically ever again. Mm-hmm. I think it's way more subtle than that. Um, it's It's more of a way of life than a moment, right? And I give the example in the book about um, <clears throat> playing music versus being a musician, right? Those are very different concepts, right? And what sets those two apart would be something like a musician has their entire life structured by various values and priorities and practices that uh, are, these are ordinary rhythms of their life, right? So the playing, the teaching, the writing of music is kind of part of the warp and woof of their life, right? Um, my picking up a guitar, you know, every three months and kind of strumming around on it doesn't make me a musician, right? So there's something about like, the is the activity woven into the fabric of your life as a whole? And I think for many of these ancient philosophers, so for many of these ancient philosophical schools in Athens, right? Like Plato's Academy, Aristotle's Lyceum, Epicurus's Garden, Zeno's Porch, um, th- these these philosophical schools had a view, a, a more encompassing view of the philosophical life than just that, right? 
And so uh, one major part of, of philosophy as a way of life, at least in antiquity, uh, which you're no doubt familiar with and your listeners are familiar with, was that the idea that philosophy was a kind of therapy uh, of the soul. As Martha Nussbaum puts it, this idea was so pervasive, right, in antiquity. It was the, she calls it a medical model of philosophizing, right? That philosophizing could actually help bring about greater clarity and health and integrity of soul uh, for the sake of living well. And I just don't think that's how many people view philosophy today, um, whether that's in like an academic context or even on the street. Uh, people are often uh, left with a vision of philosophy as completely irrelevant and out of touch with one's life, right? And uh, I think of um, some years back, uh, Marco Rubio, the Florida senator, gave some remarks at, a, I think it was some rally or something. He said, you know, we, we need less philosophers, more welders and less philosophers, right? Because he says, you know, welders make more money than philosophers. And, you know, that right there is evidence of you know, philosophers are these relics of a bygone age for many people. They're just, they're, they're out of touch with reality. And what are they good for, right? And I think that might be part and parcel, Joshua, of a, a, a completely uh, restrictive view of what the philosophical life is supposed to be. Um, uh, and I think retrieving an ancient philosophical way of life that's therapeutic, that can bring about greater health of soul for the sake of living well. Well, now I think you're connecting more to um, the relevance question, right? What does philosophy have to do with my life? Uh, a great deal, actually. Yeah. And you write about it beautifully in the in the book. And I, I was so happy to also see, um, you know, that this is not some four or 500 page book, you know, just for the, <laughs> for the listeners in case they're expecting something like that. You know, it's, it's very, very readable and, uh, you know, concise. I, I'm curious to touch on something you said, and I, I made a note of it. Um, you write in the book, philosophy's chief aim is to help one structure one's life to properly see and orient oneself to the world. Could you say a bit more about that orient? What does it mean to orient oneself to the world? Yeah, really good. I'm glad you asked that question. And maybe, maybe to to illustrate, um, I think I use this example in the book, but take the good of bodily health, right? I might see that bodily health is a good worth pursuing. Right. Suppose I, I, I lay hold of that truth. I say, yes, it's good uh, to be biologically healthy. Um, now, that's me seeing that that is a good and end worth pursuing. Right. Now, uh, here we are in January. Right. Uh, I, I imagine many of us have made New Year's resolutions where we've clearly seen that that's a good worth pursuing. We may even have committed, uh, you know, ourselves to uh, living differently in light of seeing that that's a real good worth pursuing, right? We may have purchased gym memberships, right? Um, or bought new running shoes or a new Apple Watch. I don't know. Um, 
But the orienting your life accordingly would at some level, you would need to begin uh, incorporating new rhythms and practices into your life uh, that are structured around the good of bodily health, right? And so this is my way of, of trying to pick up that, uh, at least on my read, and here I'm, I'm, I'm siding with uh, Pierre Hadot over and against some other ancient uh, historians of philosophy like John Cooper, uh, philosophy doesn't stay at, at the sort of cerebral cognitive level. Um, it's not just a matter of seeing what goods are ultimately worth pursuing, um, but it's actually uh, – it, it's cultivating a certain habit or disposition to pursue those goods and to not pursue other goods. Right to remove barriers in one's life that keep you from pursuing the goods that you see to be to be the case. So, um, uh, so this would involve actually engaging in various exercises or practices. And in the case of bodily health, that would be actually like getting to the place where you're actually physically exercising, or you're actually watching your diet. You're maybe doing so in the company of like good friends for the sake of accountability or something like that, right? You're actually engaged in practices. They're going to kind of keep you on the rails um, towards the end of this good called bodily health, right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to involve what you do, uh, you know, from nine to five. Uh, and I think this is a degreed concept. One could more or less orient one's life around the good of bodily health, to use our example, right? Someone could just say, you know what, I'm going to start exercising. And they start going to the gym for the first time, right? They're actually taking steps. They're orienting their life around the good of bodily health. They're actually engaged in practices that are going to help them achieve that end of bodily health, right? So they're in a better position than the person who says, yes, I want to be healthy. That's a good thing. And they never actually engage the will and engage in practices that are going to get them there, right? Yeah, that that person, that that beginner is in a very different place, we might say, than the, say, the fitness guru who's in the gym three hours, four hours a day, uh, who everything they do is structured around that aim or purpose or some similar purpose. So that strikes me as a degreed concept. One can more or less orient their life around a particular good. Um, and living philosophically, as I put it in the book, is to some degree or other, right? Because I want to say there can be like philosophical novices, but also philosophical veterans. You know, we all don't have to be Socrates to live a philosophical way of life, right? Um, I can still be, you know, tempted by, you know, that chocolate cake and occasionally succumb to that temptation and yet still be on balance committed to and orient my life towards the good of bodily health, for example. Uh, so th th that twofold definition is it's living philosophically, at least for many of these ancients on my read, is about more than just seeing reality in the grain of reality clearly. But it's actually mm -hmm. like walking along and living a, with the grain of reality where your life is actually lockstep with um, the grain of reality, not just seeing, oh, I believe that's the way I ought to live, but one is actually taking steps, ordering their life around uh, those particular goals worth worth achieving. Mm. 
<clears throat> Let me ask you, Ross, is it fair to say that we all have a philosophy of life? Like the question is whether our, you know, perspectives, principles, and practices, you know, line up with where we're, you know, the type of life we want to, we want to lead. Is that fair to say, or is that too simplistic? What what would you add to that? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I do want to allow for many of our kind of weightiest philosophical beliefs to be sometimes tacit, so they sort of are humming underneath the surface. I might not even be fully aware that that's what I, that that's what I believe. I think there can be the like hidden beliefs or deep beliefs that often mm. are beyond my, uh, my ability to be aware of them. I think desires are like that. Often deep desires that I'm not aware of drive my life. I, I think beliefs can be like that as well. So whether or not everybody has like a, a, a clear grasp or awareness of some of these deep, weighty philosophical beliefs that drive what they do from nine to five. That's maybe one thing. I definitely don't think everyone's aware of, right, aware of them. But I mean, we we all are going to be motivated in terms of ordinary daily actions, right, by belief desire sets, right? I believe that it's going to rain today. I desire to stay dry. So I grab my umbrella, right? Um, yeah. That's a belief desire set that influences my grab, my grabbing my umbrella versus not, right? I think there are all sorts of beliefs and desires that humans have that guide their action, that lie beyond their direct awareness, but that are nonetheless there. So in one sense, I think you could say everyone has some set of deep beliefs about the world that do inevitably guide, right, what they do from nine to five, um, or at least tend to drive or influence what they do from nine to five. Um, and I, that's why I think there's just, there's great clarity in just when someone says, I believe X, well, just watch the, watch what they do, right? Watch the way they live. Um, and I think, you know, that will be proven true whether they believe X, if they, if you find them doing things that are consistent with, with X, there's a difference between, I want to say, believing something, Joshua, and professing to believe something. I think your beliefs will inevitably drive your actions, maybe not your professed beliefs, right? But your, your real beliefs will actually drive what you do. So I think everyone has those, and I think they do inevitably drive action. Whether they're the beliefs one thinks one has, that's another question uh, <laughs> yeah. altogether. So I think the philosophical life is just sort of bringing those, bringing your beliefs uh, to the surface to evaluate, to test, to see if they ring true with reality, to see if um, things are the way that you think you believe they are, and what might what might lead me to think otherwise. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the examine life, at least my, uh, my take on it. It's sometimes it's, it's the hard work of trying to figure out what do I truly believe about the world? Um, and how can I bring that into the, into the light of day to scrutinize and to examine, to see if it's actually true. 
<laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. It reminds me of um something in addition to that that that's come up on previous episode of, you know, you're talking about the the awareness of it, but um I've had one guest suggest in that when it comes to a philosophy of life, we adopt one of these existing philosophies of life that have, you know, kind of been around for thousands of years, like Christianity in this case, um, making the claim that sometimes the philosophy of life that we come up with or that we mash together in some sort of way isn't always coherent in the way of that, like orienting ourselves. Maybe it doesn't orient ourselves in a, you know, in a coherent way, like some of these ancient, you know, timeless traditions that are kind of still around today. Mm. Um, yeah, so it's interesting, but we're, we're kind of running down on time here and I've got as a final topic, maybe a bit of a challenging topic and question, but I think you're up for it. You obviously have it, have it in the book, which is around contemplation. Yeah. Um, and you, I, I made a note here of something you write in the book, the, the task of cultivating deep attention to morally and spiritually weighty matters has traditionally been called contemplation. So could you say a bit more about contemplation just in general, whatever comes to mind, Ross? Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I guess it, one pass at this, it, you know, again, contemplation would be one of these many faceted jewels that you could you could say a lot about, um, yeah. you know, different forms of contemplation, different standpoints of contemplation. Aristotle has this conception of theoria, right, which is a very, uh, you know, Aquinas picks up and sort of does some interesting theological things with Um but contemplation, I guess, broadly considered would just be the consideration of truth. Um, and the way that the way that I unpack contemplation um, in one of the chapters is, you know, if 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 we are meaning seeking animals, right, we have this, as Aristotle said, we desire to know, to understand. That is sort of like part of what it means to be human. Then to consider truth. For the mind to feed upon truth is actually deeply fulfilling to the human being, right? It can be a part of a flourishing human life to consider or contemplate the nature and structure of reality. What is true? What, what, what truly is, right? Um, so at the very broadest level, it'd just be the consideration of the truth. Now, that could be done from one standpoint or another, right? One could 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 devote oneself to the consideration of truth from the standpoint of, um, you might say, unaided human reason. That is apart from divine revelation, or apart from the the holy scriptures, or apart from some sort of special revelation from God. Right? This would be more in the lines of philosophical contemplation. Right? It would be the consideration of the truth by simply attending to um, the ordinary structure of human experience, uh, moral goods, virtue, the life that's ultimately worth pursuing and the life that's ultimately not worth pursuing and the various means of getting there, right? Uh, this would be the consideration of beauty that would be a part of a philosophical contemplation. So it's just seeking to 
to understand the truth, how it all fits together and hangs together as a whole would be an aspect of philosophical uh, contemplation. It requires uh, deep attention. Actually, I think it requires certain moral preconditions to Joshua. I don't think you can just sort of snap your fingers and be good at paying deep attention to the world. Um, there are many, many, as I talk about in the book, there are many um, hurdles and roadblocks to considering and pondering and contemplating truth that are there uh, for us today to to consider and to navigate around. Um, so at that level, but one could also consider it, consider the truth from the standpoint of like theology. This would be called theological contemplation. So pondering uh, the deep meaning and significance of all things and how they hang together in particular uh, as they are in, in Christ, right? In the Christian tradition, Christ is sort of the, uh, he is the logos, right? So it turns out this ancient rational ordering principle of the universe that we find in uh, in ancient philosophy has has a human face in the Christian tradition, and it's Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so theological contemplation would be this added dimension of you're pondering and considering the truth as a whole, how all things hang together, their deep meaning and purpose as they hang together, but it's ultimately as they hang together in Christ. And so theological contemplation has that additional, more specific dimension to it, where it's not just done by way of unaided human reason, but it's it's sort of brought more into focus and it's brought into focus centered on the person of Jesus Christ. So you find both of these in amongst Christian philosophers in antiquity and in the Middle Ages, this idea of philosophical contemplation and theological contemplation. And Aquinas, for example, actually says there's a kind of like incomplete happiness that can be attained by way of even just philosophical contemplation. Um, so wholly apart from special revelation, one can um, feed that one's mind can feed upon the truth. And that's a deeply fulfilling and satisfying human experience because you were made for the truth. You were made to understand, as Aristotle said. But for Aquinas, there's a more there's a more satisfying kind of contemplation. As a Christian, Thomas Aquinas would say, uh, and it's considering uh, the truth and how all things hang together in their deepest meaning as they hang together in Christ. Um, it's more satisfying because the object of contemplation, namely Christ himself, is um, is more radiant. It's more, uh, has greater moral worth and moral weight, these kinds of things. So, uh, I think just broad, broadest uh, conception would be the consideration of truth. You can do that either from the standpoint of human reason unaided by divine revelation or divine grace, or you could do that from the standpoint of um, divine revelation. Mm-hmm. Those would be two, at least two, two things to say, very, uh, very <clears throat> cursory things to say about that. I, I appreciate that very much. And I want to talk about towards the end of the conversation, kind of, uh, you know, the practical thing in daily life. But I don't want to diminish, you know, this idea of contemplation yeah. in, in any way. So that's not where I'm obviously trying to go with it. But I'm curious, like, like you brought up Aquinas, um, yeah. for example. And um, as the story goes, this 
big, huge summa and all sorts of writing, you know, that's probably taller, taller than I am. Um, at some point he had an experience of God and essentially talked about all of his writing that is very respected today as nothing but of a, a bed of straw or something like that. Please correct me if, if that's not the case. Um, I'm curious, like, if you could say something about, like, contemplation, this, like, leading to some sort of experience. Like, it's not thinking like we traditionally might, you know, connect it to, um, I don't know, like, anything you could say in the way of experience and maybe if there's some way to tie it back to to wonder how it connects or or doesn't connect in in maybe leading us to to wonder and all yeah good i i mean i would just say that <clears throat> contemplation is a kind of vision um it is this is how the scriptures describe um contemplation it is a kind of vision not with one's physical eyes but with the mind i mean this is very Plato talks about this as well, um, that there's a kind of scene that can happen, an experiential scene that's not necessarily moving from one premise to another by way of like discursive reasoning, but it's a kind of an intuitive like you you, you take it all in with a kind of vision, almost as if you were looking at the Grand Canyon and in sort of one perceptual experience and you're taking it in and it's just staggering what you're seeing right that is that is the kind of vision that's the way that many of these christian philosophers and theologians talk about contemplation it is a kind of intellectual experience um that is intrinsically tied to action for sure um but you know they have a lot to say about the relationship between the active and the contemplative life so it's not just contemplation as this intellectual vision or experience of what's true and good and beautiful, but it is a kind of intellectual scene or experience. And what I think was going on perhaps with Aquinas is, so he he even says that uh, all forms of light, he calls them imperfect contemplation, right? We can see in some sense, although as the scriptures say, we see in a, in a glass dimly, right? Paul says, that is a way of saying we can see what's truly morally good and spiritually weighty now in this life, but but we but our vision isn't twenty twenty. You might say we can grasp towards what's truly spiritually weighty and morally weighty in life now, but there will come a time. And well, let me just say, in contemplation is the way that we sort of see what's truly worth pursuing in life and actually going after it. But there will come a time on the Christian story when we will actually, we will no longer see, right, in a glass dimly. Our, our vision, our existential vision, you might say, will be 2020. Um, and that is a kind of perfect contemplation. So for Aquinas, you know, contemplation is is a degreed notion. You can engage in contemplative practice now, you can consider truth as it relates to your life and how you structure your life now, but it's kind of, it's not 2020 type of uh, vision. 
Um, but it serves as a kind of foretaste of the vision to come. And that's just traditionally what Christians have called the beatific vision. It's when we will see God as he is the most morally weighty and valuable being in all of the universe, we'll actually behold him. We will have that experience that I think Aquinas had a foretaste of before he died and moved on to the next life. Um, so I, I don't want to say that he thought everything he did was worthless. I think what he yeah. was saying was in comparison to my be yeah. to my beholding what I was just seeing without 2020 vision before, this is just this eclipses the value of everything that I done. I think that speaks more to the value of what he saw than the disvalue of what he did in his life. Yeah. Well, beautiful. Thank you so much for that, for that, yeah, Ross. I, I think that's really helpful and definitely a a difficult topic to to talk about. And I, I highly recommend everybody pick up the book. I think the listeners will, will really enjoy it. Um, we, we've made it to this final wrap-up question, and, and sometimes I feel bad about asking a question, how do you define or think about wisdom? Because maybe we've been talking about that for the last hour or so. Yeah. But what, what comes to mind briefly around, you know, how should we think about wisdom in daily life? Yeah, excellent. Um, I think I, met, I mentioned a definition in the book that I, I think is from uh, a th an older theologian, now dead. His name is J.I. Packer. And he wrote a little book called Knowing God. And I would just add a little bit to, to Packer's definition, but I'll read it. And it, and it goes like this. Um, cultivating. Now, this would be from a Christian philosophical perspective, right? Uh, as, I, as I'm coming at things in the book. Cultivating by God's empowering grace the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goals and the surest means of attaining them. Mm. So it's the it's the it's the power to cultivate by God's grace the ability to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goals and the surest means of attaining them. So that that definition of just like wisdom for daily life involves the intellect, the ability to see. If if this isn't directed in the right direction, there are going to be problems <laughs> for your life as a whole. Um, it involves the will, the inclination to choose, right? Cultivating the, a greater inclination to choose. The best and the highest goals, it seems that there are the best and the highest goals to, to, to aim at. But not just that, but, but the surest means of attaining those goals. So that's where practical wisdom would be employed as well. It's not just that I see where I need to be and I become more reliable in heading in that direction. If I have no practical wisdom about how to, how to get there, right? <laughs> I won't get there. Um, it's like one, you can use a sailing analogy, right? One could say, yeah, I know where I need, I need to be. There's the destination, right? On the map. I want to sail to, to Catalina Island. Um, one could even set off, right? Uh, on, on a sea voyage to Catalina Island, right? But if you have no idea how to sail, if you don't know how to like raise the sail or 
I don't know, whatever sailors do. I'm not a sailor, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like if you don't know how to steer a boat or if you don't know how to like read the winds, you're in trouble. So I think wisdom for living, it can't just be reduced to any one of those. I think it actually has to be like a dynamic and harmony between those, the power to see, the inclination to choose, the best and the highest goals, and the surest means of attaining those goals. So I think it's kind of a, of a dance between those three things that, at least for the Christian, without God's empowering aid, um, we won't be able to properly see. We won't be able to cultivate the disposition to choose the best and the highest goods, uh, let alone the surest means of attaining them. So this is a kind of human and divine interaction that takes place for the Christian to live a life of wisdom in, in the fullest sense. Love it. Well, that's a great way to wrap it up. Uh, again, uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking the time. For the listeners, the book is Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life. I highly recommend it. Um, are there any you know websites or places that you might point our listeners before we wrap up? Um, just in terms of, uh, in general or my own work or what were you, what were you thinking? Yeah. You, I was thinking your own work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, rostyinman.com is, is a place to, to, to connect with some of my, my previous, uh, work. Um, you can check out the things that I've written there, other books and other articles. Uh, that would be a good place to, good place to start. All right. Great. Well, we'll link that in the show notes so it's easy to find. All right. Ross Inman, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you, Joshua. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.